Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. Our guest this week on Carolina Newsmakers is Tom Jensen. He's been with us, I don't know how many times, but numerous times. He, of course, is the Director of Public Policy Polling, a company that does polling not only here in the state of North Carolina, but also across the country. And his uh, polling work has been recognized as some of the best. Uh, they have proven themselves time after time with accurate polling. And uh, as uh, I've said in talking with others, sometimes they don't always find out what you want, uh, the way you want it to be, but they usually find out uh, what the, the story is and, and have been pretty accurate with all of their uh, forecasts and so forth. Uh, so uh, with that in mind, Tom, let's, let's focus on a race that's going to be very much in the news nationally. And that is uh, the uh, so-called Senator Burr seat here in North Carolina that will be up. Senator Burr is elected not to seek re-election. Um, and uh, so the Democrats are lining up, the Republicans are lining up, and uh, with the Senate currently at 50-50, this is one of those eight races that you mentioned earlier that will determine who has control of the Senate for the next uh, two years. Uh, so what are you, uh, let, let's take, I guess, each party and talk about the candidates first of all, for that particular party, and then we can get down to how you think it's going to come out. So let, let's start with, uh, since it's a, an incumbent Republican seat, let's start with the Republican candidates. Uh, one of the things that, of course, has already happened is uh, uh, President Trump has endorsed one of the candidates. Uh, so sort of give us a summary of the, the uh, candidates are running, and then we can talk about what you uh, have found. Yeah, so you have three major candidates on the Republican side, uh, and that's former Governor Pat McCrory, Congressman Ted Budd from the Triad, and former Congressman Mark Walker, also from the Triad. Uh, Pat McCrory definitely starts out as the front runner in the race, but that is a product of name recognition more than anything else. He's the only one of that trio who's run statewide, and he's run statewide three times for a high-profile office. So he starts out with the lead in the Republican primary, and, and I think the other Republicans agree that that's the case. That's not really disputed that McCrory starts out as the front runner. Uh, but then you have this interesting situation where Donald Trump has endorsed Ted Budd. Uh, and there's sort of, I think, a general thought that if somebody gets the Donald Trump endorsement within the Republican Party, uh, that means that they're going to win the race. And it certainly is a big boost, but it's still not 100% that just because you get endorsed by Trump, that means everybody's going to listen to Trump and you're going to get your way. Probably the North Carolina Republican who's drawn the most attention so far in 2021 uh, is Congressman Madison Cawthorn from the mountains. And when he was running last year in a runoff for the Republican nomination, Trump endorsed his opponent and he still won two to one. So Madison Cawthorn won two to one, even though Trump endorsed his opponent. And that's good news for somebody like Pat McCrory or good news for somebody like Mark Walker, that Trump does not have a 100 percent golden touch within Republican primaries. Uh, and just in July, uh, there was a special election in Texas uh, to replace a congressman who died of covid. Uh, and there were two Republicans running and the one who Trump endorsed lost. Uh, so it's not like you absolutely win if you get the Trump endorsement. It is great news for Ted Budd that he got the Trump endorsement. That's not a 100% ticket to victory. The other thing that's the other thing that's worth thinking about in the context of this race is that, that McCrory coming back after being out of office for a while and having an early lead based on name recognition 
is a very similar situation to what former Minnesota Governor Tim Pawlenty found himself in in 2018. He had been the governor of Minnesota, ran for president, didn't get the Republican nomination, decided he wanted to be governor of Minnesota again, uh, and he lost in the primary to somebody who he started out with a huge lead against, but it turned out that his primary opponent was sort of more in touch with what people wanted from a Republican in 2018, whereas Tim Pawlenty was maybe more what people wanted from a Republican in 2008. So that's something McCrory has to watch out for, is whether these folks uh, who haven't run for statewide office before start out low because they don't have very high name recognition. But if once people get to know them, people decide they want that, they think that's more the future of the Republican Party, and they decide that McCrory was the past. Well, were you surprised uh, at the timing of the endorsement uh, being that far in advance of the uh, the election? I guess yeah. that's more of a, a personal question than it is a polling question, but I was sort of surprised that he endorsed uh, 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 Ted Budd so quickly. Well, it was on a Saturday night, and I was sitting at, the, at a baseball game in the NCAA tournament and went on Twitter, and I certainly wasn't expecting major political news at 8 o'clock on a Saturday night, uh, 17 months before the election. So I'm, I'm with you that that did come as quite a surprise that he went this early. And there also just isn't a totally clear reason why he is so enthusiastic about Bud as opposed to Walker or McCrory. They've all been pretty loyal to him. Uh, so that, that endorsement was a little bit quizzical to me. And one thing that's different about this Trump endorsement compared to some of the other ones he'll make is I'm pretty confident Trump doesn't hate any of these people running for the Senate in North Carolina. And I actually think that that's where Trump makes the biggest difference is if he hates somebody and goes and tells all his base that they should hate that person too. So I think it may be Let's let's think of this as let's say that it ends up being a race between Bud and McCory. Trump's endorsement is not going to help Bud as much as it would if Trump went out and told everyone they should hate McCory, too. But if Trump just says vote for Bud and leaves McCory alone, that doesn't like build up this hatred towards uh, McCory that Trump's done with some other Republicans. Like we did a poll this week that found 80 to 90 percent of Republicans in Alaska dislike Lisa Murkowski, who's been a Republican senator forever. Well, they dislike Murkowski because Trump hates her. When we do a poll about Mitt Romney, we find 80, 90 percent of Republicans disagree with him, even though the Romneys have been Republican family royalty in this country for 60 years. Well, it's because Trump hates him and Trump told those people to hate Romney. He hasn't told anybody to hate McCrory. And that, I think, helps McCrory have the endorsement of Bud not hurt McCory as much as it would if there was a lot of animosity behind it. Are you ready to go out on a limb and project uh, who you think will end up with the nomination? <laughs> um, I, I guess I would cautiously predict that McCory uh, still ends up winning it, but there's a lot of time left for, for all that to change. Okay, let's switch over to the Democrat uh, side because the Democrats would love to pick up this seat. This would be a key game for them. Uh, and let's uh, handicap the candidates there. So I guess I'd say there's three major candidates on the Democratic side for the Senate, and that's uh, former Chief Justice uh, Sherry Beasley, State Senator Jeff Jackson from Mecklenburg County. Uh, and then even though I don't really think she has a chance of winning the nomination, 
I still include former state Senator Erica Smith in that major candidate list, simply because she did get about a third of the vote in the primary for U.S. Senate last year against Cal Cunningham. So she did get a number of votes. I don't know if she'd still get those votes in a race with different uh, sort of candidate dynamics, but uh, the three of them sort of rise to the top. I think that Sherry Beasley is the favorite. Uh, She's certainly the most qualified candidate with all of her experience in statewide judicial office and having been chief justice. She's raising the most money of any of the candidates. Uh, I think that national group, she's who they would like to to end up being the Democratic nominee. Uh, And then also something that's been a major trend in Democratic primaries across the entire country, really since the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis last summer, has been that Democrats are are showing a strong tendency to want to nominate African-American candidates whenever possible. Uh, We've really sort of seen a situation when we've been polling Senate primaries and congressional primaries and that sort of thing that most voters who are on the fence are ending up deciding that they think right now the Democratic Party should be putting forward African-American candidates uh, for these key offices. One race that was really interesting that we polled on earlier this year was the mayor of Pittsburgh was up for re-election. He was a white guy. People liked him. He had a perfectly good approval rating. But he was defeated in the primary by an African-American candidate because even though they liked the incumbent just fine, uh, there's just a strong desire for the Democratic Party right now to be putting forward candidates of color for major offices. So uh, I think in a different world, Jeff Jackson would be a really strong candidate. He has a very strong social media following. Uh, He's raised a lot of money, too. But I think in this climate, especially because she is the most qualified candidate to boot, I think uh, Sherry Beasley is going to likely end up with that nomination. I feel more comfortable with that prediction than I do with making a prediction about the Republicans right now. So at this point, I say that we're ending up with a race between uh, Beasley and McCrory, a very interesting race because you've got a former governor uh, running against a former chief justice, a, a black female running against a white male. Uh, so uh, would you like to go out on the limb and project how that will end up? <laughs> well, I, I, I don't even feel like I'm going out on that much of a limb by saying this. Um, so I, I'll make a very specific prediction that the Republican ends up winning by two points, 51 to 49. And there's two things that sort of feed into that. Uh, Number one, as I said, we're in a very similar political climate to last November. Things really haven't changed very much. Well, what happened in the average statewide race last November? The Republican won by two points. Uh, So that lends itself to thinking that a Republican would win 51-49. And then the other broader reason is that North Carolina over the last four election cycles has repeatedly shown itself to be a 51-49 state. When you sort of take all the races together for 2014, Republicans won 51 49. 2016, Republicans won 51 49. 2018, Democrats won 51 49. 2020, Republicans won 51 49. We really are about as closely divided a state as we possibly can be. And we've been very close to 50 50 four election cycles in a row. But three out of those four times, it's ended up slightly on the Republican side of the fence. And certainly history tells us that the first midterm for a new president usually goes against his party. uh, So that lends itself to a strong uh, to a slight Republican victory, too. Now, the one thing that could be different about this midterm election 
is that we've had this big resorting in American politics during the Trump years and since he left office, where Democrats are now the party of more well-educated people. Republicans are the party of less well-educated people. Usually in midterm elections, Republicans have done a better job of showing up to vote than Democrats have. But it's also a historic trend that better educated people are more likely to show up in midterm elections than less well-educated people. So the thing that could let Democrats win in North Carolina next year and let Democrats win next year more broadly across the country is if their newly highly educated base turns out at a much higher level than this Trump base that includes a lot of less well-educated voters who might be less likely to turn out for an election where Trump's not on the ballot. That's the argument that next year could actually end up being a good year for Democrats is if their voters turn out and Republicans don't, reflecting the shift in the education bases of both parties. Okay, North Carolina is still growing a great deal. It's, it's uh, almost every list. It's listed as a place that people would like to live, move to. So our growth factor is still there. As new people come into the state, is this changing the dynamic or is it coming in just pretty much like everything else that makes North Carolina a 50-50 purple state? Well, I do think the new voters who move in are uh, are a little bit more on the blue side of the spectrum. They're moving here from places like Connecticut and New York and California that have traditionally voted Democratic. And I do think that's a big piece of why we've become a swing state for president, whereas we used to be a pretty reliably Republican state. As recently as uh, 2004, George W. Bush won the state by 12 points, uh, and we really were very solidly red. And since then, the most lopsided of the last four presidential elections was a four-point decision. And the average margin when you add up all of the last four presidential elections is a two-point difference in the state. In-migration has really contributed to making North Carolina a swing state. Interesting. Uh, our guest is Tom Jensen. In the last segment, which will be coming up in just a few moments, we're going to talk about the uh, uh, importance of the independent or unaffiliated vote. And we're going to ask Tom about the issues that the GOP and the Democrats should focus on. And we'll do that when we return right after these messages. One in three adults in America have prediabetes, but most don't know it. To let people know it can be reversed before it becomes type 2 diabetes, professional basketball player Julius Randle is doing everything in reverse. I'm only dunking with reverse windmills. I drove the whole way to practice in reverse. I don't recommend it. This move's called the reverse shuffle. I do recommend it. And it took me months to learn how to speak in reverse, like this. <clears throat> Here's 10 almost for diabetes type 2 with living Ben has my mom. In other words, my mom has been living with type 2 diabetes for almost 10 years. So together, we want to say to the 84 million Americans at risk, exercise and healthy eating can help reverse prediabetes. Start by taking a simple one-minute risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. <laughs> Bet he can't say that in reverse. I'm a 40-year-old man that walked in there to get his high school diploma. It was very hard for me, but Miss Araceli, she gave me direction. At age 47, Marco finished his high school diploma. 50% of getting your high school diploma is walking through those doors. The other 50% is doing the work. No one gets a diploma alone. If you're thinking of finishing your high school diploma, you have help. Find free adult education classes near you at finishyourdiploma.org. That's finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by the Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. 
Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. Welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. This is our last segment, and it's with Tom Jensen, who's the Director of Public Policy Polling. Tom has been with us a number of times through the years, and uh, always shares with us the results of his polling, and his uh, knowledge of what's going on is based on all his polling, not only here in North Carolina, but across the country. And uh, Tom, we promised when we started that we were going to focus a little bit on the uh, in, the importance of the independent or unaffiliated voters. We've been talking about Democrats and Republicans, but in North Carolina, we obviously have uh, almost uh, a plurality now of uh, unaffiliated voters, uh, and that list goes up. But obviously, everyone who's unaffiliated leans one way or the other. They're not uh, without uh, opinions on on uh, issues, and so we have this large number of people who are registered unaffiliate, which means that during the primary, they can elect to vote in the Democratic primary or the Republican primary. Well, what are you finding out about unaffiliated in North Carolina? Do more of them lean Republican or lean Democratic? Well, you made a really good point that most of these people aren't true independent voters. They might be unaffiliated, but most of them either vote Democratic or Republican most of the time. Uh, and I'd say it's pretty evenly split between those two groups. I think about half the unaffiliateds in North Carolina who lean strongly one way, lean towards the Democrats, and about half lean strongly towards the Republicans. I think that uh, you could do a poll today and 90% of people in the state could tell you exactly which party you're going to vote for, they're going to vote for, for the U.S. Senate next November. So you're really talking about 10% of the state that's truly undecided voters who are sort of open to going either way. And the historic trend with these voters uh, is that they just end up, well, they, they hate everyone. They don't like Democrats or Republicans, and that's part of why they're unaffiliated. But what they end up doing most of the time is voting for the party that's out of power. So when the Republicans are in charge, they think Republicans are terrible and they vote Democratic to try to get a change. And then when the Democrats are in charge, they decide that the Democrats are terrible and they vote Republican to try to get a change. And that's one of the big reasons that midterm elections traditionally have gone so well for the party that's out of power is these people who are never going to be happy with anybody just end up always voting for change. Uh, and it doesn't mean they like the Republicans. And if the Republicans get back in, then four years later, they'll be voting Democratic, voting for change in the other direction. Uh, but those sorts of voters are really what contributes, especially in a 50-50 state like North Carolina, to sort of having the power go back and forth and back and forth is they just vote against. I shouldn't even really say they vote for. They just vote against whoever they're fed up with at a particular moment. So do you see this trend continuing with more and more people registering unaffiliated despite whatever their personal leanings are? Or do you think it's about capped out? No, I absolutely think that it'll continue increasing exponentially. Within the next five years, we'll definitely have more unaffiliated voters than Democrats or Republicans in the state. And I would think within 10 to 15 years, a majority of voters in the state will be unaffiliated. There's a couple different reasons for that. One is that younger voters feel no affinity for the political parties at all. They might mostly vote Democratic, but they still think that the Democratic Party itself is terrible. You think about all those young people who voted for Bernie Sanders. They're very liberal, and that's why they supported Bernie Sanders. But they also don't like the Democratic Party because they think that the Democratic Party blocked Bernie Sanders. 
So a lot of voters like that are going to be registering unaffiliated because they don't like either party. And then just in general, you see people not liking either party. Uh, neither. It's not like you have that many people who are terribly enthusiastic about either the Democrats or the Republicans. Uh, so when they get that registration, they just end up registering unaffiliated. So I do think that we are soon going to have a, uh, an unaffiliated plurality in the state. And uh, sometime in, 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 in our lifetimes, we'll have an unaffiliated majority. Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, you talk to a lot of people who have changed from one party or the other to unaffiliated. There's absolutely no reason to ever change back because you can still vote in the primary of your choice. So there's actually very little reason to, uh, unless you're thinking about running for office. What's bothered me more about the huge number of unaffiliated is these people are basically out of the pool to be a political candidate because if you're not a Democrat or Republican, it's going to be very difficult to get a nomination. And that worries me a great deal with the large number of people who are actually taking themselves out of the pool as candidates. And does that worry you? Well, it's something that I, I'll be interested to see how that changes over time. If we reach the point where you actually can be viable uh, as a candidate for office, if you are an unaffiliated candidate, if this proliferation of unaffiliated will actually sort of bring a situation where people might be willing to vote for somebody who's not of the major parties, or if that's just not a thing that happens one way or the other, uh, I sort of feel like the, the larger that unaffiliated pool gets, the more possible it's going to be that you actually start to have unaffiliated candidates be uh, viable candidates for office. We, we've actually elected at least one legislator that I can think of in the last decade who did run as an unaffiliated candidate, but he was a more conservative sort of guy, and he was the de facto Republican candidate in the district. He probably would have lost if there had been an actual Republican candidate on the ballot. Uh, so it'll definitely be interesting to see uh, how that dynamic sort of shifts in the, in the coming years. Oh, we've got about six minutes left, and I'd like you to spend about three minutes on both sides of this issue, and that is talking about the issues that the Republicans should focus on and issues that the Democrats should focus on if they want to change the dynamic in the midterm election some 15 months from now. So if you'll watch the clock, spend about half the time on each party and, and tell us what issues, if you were advising GOP candidates or Democratic candidates, that they should focus on. Well, the number one thing I would tell Republicans that they need to focus on is uh, changing the perception that they're really a party of extremists. Uh, we frankly should be right now in a very pro-Republican political climate. All historical trends tell us that at this point in the political calendar, seven months into a new Democratic president's term, uh, that the Republicans should be uh, in very good shape going into next year, and they're not in good shape. And I think the reason that they're not in good shape is because of things like the insurrection at the Capitol and the unwillingness to really do an honest uh, investigation of what happened with the insurrection and continuing to sort of bow down to Trump on every issue and that sort of thing. What Republicans really need more than anything else is they had this incredible growth in their party base over the last five years because of Trump, where a lot of people who haven't really been a part of the political process before came into it because Trump appealed to them in a way that no candidate ever had before. Uh, and those people's number one overarching sort of characteristic is that they hate the Democrats. 
So that's what holds them together is hating Democrats, hating liberals, hating lots of different people. That's sort of the new Republican Party base. But what they need if they're going to be successful in future elections is to get back some of these historically moderate Republicans who were so repulsed by the direction of the party over the last four years that they jumped ship. And those are the kind of people who see something like the insurrection and say, I'm going to keep not voting for Republicans, even though I may agree with Republicans on taxes and a lot of economic issues. They've just gotten too extreme culturally for me to want to be a part of that. They need to find a way to bring those people back in the fold without losing these people who Trump newly energized. And so I think that's the biggest thing. It's not for Republicans. I don't think of what they need as something being an issue like healthcare or education or something like that. It's really sort of more a broader thematic thing where they just need to sort of change their image and come across differently as a party so that they can get those moderate suburban voters who bailed to the Democrats over the last five years back into the fold. What about the Democrats? I think when you look at issues broadly, voters are generally on the same page with Democrats. You talk about something like healthcare, voters are on the same page with Democrats. You talk about something like education, voters are on the same page with Democrats. This temporary issue of COVID, people agree more with the Democrats about vaccination. People agree more with the Democrats about um, masks. You know, Democrats have public opinion with them on sort of the core issues that are going on. But I think the thing Democrats need to be careful about is not coming across as being too far to the left uh, and turning off people who, who are repulsed by Trump. But then they say the Democrats are just as bad. So I guess I'll just vote Republican because that's what I'm used to doing. I think the biggest thing that hurt Democrats last year was the perception that they supported defunding the police. Uh, that is something that is just not a view that's popular with just about anyone. Uh, when we go into sort of politically competitive districts and ask, do you support or oppose the idea of defunding the police? We usually find that about 20 or 25 percent of voters say they support that. About 70 percent of voters say they oppose it. And the reality is you didn't really have that many significant Democratic politicians running around last year saying defund the police. But the party people who were saying that were loud enough that it got turned into a perception that that was what the whole Democratic Party was about, was defund the police, defund the police. And people are so scared of that idea that Democrats are so extreme and that they're going to let law and order fall apart, that then agreeing with the Democrats on health care and education and COVID, that all falls by the wayside because that thing that a certain swath of the party is promoting that sounds so extreme to your average voter, that's out, uh, outweighing everything else in sort of terms of people's calculation. So I guess I'm actually giving a very similar answer from different directions for both the Democrats and the Republicans, is that I think both of them need to sort of tone down some of their most extreme supporters, come across as being sort of more in the middle of the road, and then they'll have A, a better chance of getting those voters in the middle. But the other thing that's so important these days is a lot of the time what motivates voters is who is more scared of the opposite side. So like in 2018, Democrats had a huge year because Democrats were so scared of Trump and the Republicans going off the rails and Republicans didn't have that same sort of sense of urgency. But then with defund the police in 2020, Republicans did have that sense of urgency. Oh my goodness, we must stop the country from these Democrats and defunding the police. I think if either side could sort of 
bring the temperature down, they might not provide the sort of motivation for the other side to turn out that then causes you to lose because so many other people vote for the other side that it outweighs your side. Well, of course, the interesting thing about everything you've said is one side can say something, but the other side can run negative ads pointing out the, the same weakness of the other party. So that's uh, going to be something interesting to watch. Well, I've left myself an awkward amount of time, not enough time to give uh, Tom a chance to answer a good question. So I, I'll just hold it to the next time around. Tom Jensen's been our guest. He's the director of public policy polling. If you miss part of the broadcast and like to hear a repeat, you can go online carolinanewsmakers.com and hear just that. And on our network stations, it carries the 30-minute version. Remember, there's two more segments. And again, you can go to carolinanewsmakers.com and hear those two segments. Jason Kong has produced our program and he'll have another guest for us next week on the same group of stations. And so well, next week, same time, same station. Have a good week, everybody. Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong. Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.